researchers want to hear from patients. Patients and their families want to be involved. Why is this so hard to do? My name is Kevin Fryert. My 30-year career at Pfizer gave me a chance to learn about many facets of drug discovery and development. When I retired, I started Salem Oaks to help patients understand the world of biopharmaceutical R&D so that they can be more effective partners and shape the future of medicine. We think that if patients and researchers got to know each other as people, the conversations would be much easier to start. Each month on Unprobable Developments, I will interview scientists, investigators, and patients who are actively working in medical research and development. Our goal is to help patients and those who care about them to get to know the kinds of people working on their behalf. This month on Improbable Developments, we are talking to Dr. Rob Lampkin-Williams. Rob is a virologist in the UK. We worked together on a flu vaccine about a decade ago. Given the current COVID crisis, I asked Rob to talk about the vaccine development process and his passion for science. We recorded this episode at the end of March 2020, before COVID had really taken off. So, Rob, can you briefly tell us your story and how you came to be doing what you're doing today? Yes, thank you. Yeah, it was 10 years ago. It's an amazing thing. That was the last time we saw each other. I actually came, I came to university in Bryson, where I still live, um, to actually study pharmacy originally. Um, and that was in the early 80s. Um, and actually, that was during the HIV um, outbreak, the AIDS pandemic. So after I completed my pharmacy um, degree, became a qualified pharmacist, I practiced pharmacy for a while, short while, but I then went to Warwick University and did a PhD in virology um, with the hope of working on HIV, but they would not let graduate students at that time work on HIV. Um, so I ended up working on influenza um, respiratory viruses, which has actually been particularly um, what I now focus on mostly, but I do have a great interest in other viruses. In fact, my PhD was on bird flu about 10 years before bird flu was even mentioned in the media. So, um, so you know, that was very interesting. And it, it would be, it, uh, the research I was doing then would be done, done under very different circumstances on bird flu now shall we say, because it was not a popular item. So after that, um, I then went and joined the University of London with a spin-out company from that called HVivo, which specialised in a variety of things, testing antiviral drugs, vaccines on people, did some clinical trials, did laboratory-based work, but in particular became known for controlled human challenge studies, so in other words, you take a population of young and healthy adults and you deliberately infect them with a virus with the intention to find out what happens. Um, obviously, you do this in a very safe way, um, but these people do become sick. So can you tell us a little bit about how you do that? How do you set up a safe environment to do such an experiment? We're not, we're not the only people who have done it. I mean, in the United Kingdom, there's been a 
a long history of doing it um, after the end of the world for um, Second World War. Uh, after the second end of the Second World War, the Americans, when they left, left a big military hospital on Salisbury Plain. It was taken over by the Medical Research Council and called the Common Cold Unit. And they would take people there and infect them. And they did that all the way up until the end of the 1990s before they closed it down. And they just did a lot of work, discovered a lot of respiratory viruses there. They did some of the very early work on antiviral drugs against flu there. So that was closed down. Some groups in America has, um, also started doing these studies and were doing them in motels and hotels um, and quarantining those hotels off. Um, we then, that then stopped in America for a while at the end of the 90s. We started to do it in the UK in hotels, um, again, and it's very similar to how the Americans had been doing it. And we would section off the hotel, quarantine the hotel. We would screen volunteers very thoroughly to make sure they were young and healthy, usually between 18 to 45 years old, had no underlying conditions that might be at risk of complications of the virus that we would give them. Um, and then we would allow, then we would do the experiments, basically, which is what it is, it's an experiment um, on these volunteers. Um, and that was extremely successful. And um, I think we've, in t- total, done almost 4,000 volunteers uh, since the beginning of this century, so in the last 20 years. So a large number of volunteers to have been infected with viruses. So those volunteers, how long do they have to stay in that quarantined hotel? That's right. Well, it started out as in quarantined hotels, um, and it, would be, it could be up to 18 days. Most would be between 12 to 14 days. Depends on the virus. Different respiratory viruses, because they're the ones we were using, have different durations and how long, you know, somebody is infected for or infectious for. So how long they are actually suffering and how long they might be able to pass on the virus to other people. Because obviously we didn't want to send out people into the community with a virus that we had just given them. We wanted to make sure they were healthy before they left us. So we did that. We quarantined them because we didn't want them bringing in any virus that wasn't the one we were experimenting on. So we knew that the data we got was the data from just that virus. After, but after we'd been using hotels for quite some time, uh, the London Development Agency supported us to build a dedicated 24-bedroomed hotel effectively with 24 individual ensuite rooms, quarantine rooms, that does look like something out of a science fiction movie, which might have something more to do with when I designed it, I had seen too many science fiction movies. So are those people isolated in their rooms or are they able to move around the facility? At the beginning, when we were using the hotels, we would allow them to move around because being isolated, as people are discovering now, is, you know, it it is a bit of an unusual thing. Um, And 20 years ago when we first started this, there was no social media. You know, there was no Twitter, there was no Facebook. So we were concerned about that. But that does present the problem that you do have, you know, one of the benefits of these studies is you know the exact point in time of when you give the virus to the person. And you can take samples and see exactly how the body is responding to the virus that you've given them. 
and you know exactly the time periods involved. And that's the brilliant thing about that. The problem with mixing is that one person might pass the virus to another person two or three days later. So as we move forward, we started to quarantine people more and keep them more isolated in their rooms. Just as social media and that Twitter and the internet and everything like that came, came, was developing. So people were still able to have social contact. So now they are generally isolated completely um, from human contact, other than electronic contacts, which many people around the world are doing exactly right now. I was going to say, you probably generated some real insights about being isolated for two or three weeks at a time. Could you share some of those? In many of the studies, I would actually be in, this, in the isolation with them. And in the very early studies, we had procedures where the staff would stay isolated with the volunteers. We then slightly changed that as we get, you know, as you develop the model, we would allow staff to watch, um, shower in and shower out of the unit. Um, but but no, I've, I've spent my f- fair few months in pro- full-blown quarantines before. So, so this is not, not that unusual for me, I have to say. So just before we started recording today, you mentioned that you're actually locked down for three months? I'm an asthmatic, a fairly healthy asthmatic. Um, I can do half marathons. Not very well, but I can do them. And I think my best time is two hours. Um, and that was uh, when I was a little bit younger. I think my last time I did was about two hours, 20 minutes. But um, So I'm normally fine as an asthmatic. My asthma is extremely well controlled. But one of the things with, particularly with the COVID virus at the moment, but actually with all common, common cold viruses and flu, is it can trigger asthma in very badly in asthmatics and certain types of asthmatics. And I'm one of those types of asthmatics. So in fact, most winters, if I catch a normal cold, I have quite severe asthma and I have to take um, steroids to control that. So this virus would be particularly nasty for me. So the National Health Service here has directed people like myself, which would also include certain diabetics, people with heart disease, and um, other people who more might be more susceptible to actually stay indoors completely. I have a very I have a garden, but it's only about twenty five meters squared, so it's not exactly a lot of room. Um, it has to be said. So I'm yes, I'm quarantined to protect myself. So I'm one of the people who are at risk. So as well as everybody else being quarantined to stop, slow the spread, the, the government has taken those most at risk out of the equation as much as possible as well. I'm not aware of other countries doing that, but I may be wrong on that. So but it, but it seems a very sensible strategy to me. I will say, as soon as I was told this, I ordered an, a, a running machine, um, and that unfortunately went straight out of stock. Um, and I ordered another one, and I finally got confirmation this morning that it is now on a cu- in a courier van on its way to me. So I will be getting my exercise. You know, at the end of the day, it's a highly contagious virus, and in most people, it doesn't cause serious disease. So most people are going to get this virus at some point, and many are not even going to notice they've had it. It's just a few people. Well, I say a few, a few thousand. It went over a thousand yesterday in the United Kingdom. Okay, let's talk about your virology expertise. You now run a new company. What is it called? It's called virologyconsult.com. 
so people can check you out there. And I know you write a blog as well. Yes, I did. It's a blog on there. You can subscribe to the blog. I've um, put right in the center. Of, it was never intended to be a COVID blog, I have to say. Um, that was not my intention. I actually set the company up. Actually, I set it technically. I set it up many years ago, but never used it because I was still working for another company. But started it really six months ago as a general virology consultancy. And that was the intention. I did not expect the worst pandemic to come along three months later. So it's, it has turned into a lot of information about COVID and a COVID blog. I put on onto it each day. There's probably about up to a dozen what I think are well-sourced and sensible articles. No conspiracy theories. No, this is being caused by 5G or drink this or take lots of vitamin C or that sort of thing type stuff. These are well-sourced articles. Um, that's on the general media side. And now as we've got publications coming out of actual research in peer-reviewed journals, that's going into the uh, blog as well. But they're sort of separated so people can choose which articles they want to look at. But they're very much um, from very well-sourced articles from, for example, The Guardian in the UK and the BBC to New York Times, The Washington Post, um, and Le Monde and others. So let's talk about the virus a little bit. What makes this coronavirus so much more dangerous than something like influenza? Coronaviruses are a totally different type of virus, um, and they're much more ubiquitous. They're a totally different group of viruses from influenza. So we know influenza. Influenza is very seasonal. Um, we know it changes. We know how it... I don't think you can directly compare these two viruses as such. They are causing deaths. They are causing a lot of people um, illnesses, but they are very different viruses. And so you should be very careful comparing the two. Um, so I would be very reluctant to do that. Flu is flu. It's, uh, you know, it's like a, a, a small dog and a cat or something like that. They're, they're two, they're two different viruses. They behave in very different ways. And so how does coronavirus behave? And what should we pay attention to? You'll get up to about 200 coronavirus infections um, in your lifetime, um, basically, some of which will, you'll barely even notice. Others, if you're an asthmatic, you might have much more severe symptoms. Some people just have a bad cold, be grumpy and annoying in the office for two to three weeks. And, um, you know, that sort of thing. Most people, most coronaviruses are like that. However, coronavirus is an RNA virus and viruses are separated into two types of viruses. One's with DNA as their main genetic material, like ourselves. And others which just use RNA, which we also use, but slightly differently, as they, but they use it RNA as their main um, genetic material. That is very um, changeable. It mutates very, very rapidly. And so these viruses can ch change very rapidly. So coronaviruses will mutate quite quickly as well, as will flu, in fact. And that's what we've seen with coronavirus. It took us by surprise with SARS which was the first coronavirus that um, created an, an incident like this. Fortunately, with that virus, that coronavirus, we, a person wasn't really infectious until they actually had symptoms. 
so that if they had symptoms, you were able to isolate them quite quickly, and therefore we were able to contain that virus quite quickly. There was another coronavirus that um, mutated called MERS, which is Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome virus. That um, um, came out um, a few years ago. That developed. That's been relatively limited, but um, also as a new, more aggressive coronavirus. Now we have this one, which is a highly contagious virus. So people are going to catch it. You have something known as the reproduction ratio, R0, which is the number of people. So if you've got a certain number of people in a room and one person has the virus, how many other people are going to get infected? Or if flu, it's the R, that R0 is one. Um, with this virus, it's highly infected um, it's, uh, and that R0 is two, two to three about. We're still working out exact numbers because we don't have enough testing going on at all in the United States or in Europe or in the UK because we don't actually have those numbers. We can't be 100% sure, but we do know it's a between two and three, and that means that for every one person infected, two people are going to become infected, so it's highly contagious. Um, and so that's what is different about this virus. But also, uh, compared to SARS... You're infectious, you're infectious, so you can infect somebody before you have any symptoms. So you can be walking down the street, feeling perfectly healthy, and infect somebody. And that's what the big difference is, and that's why this virus is spreading so quickly. And so do we have any data on the time course of the disease? How long does it take to go from being infected to seeing active disease, seeing the symptoms, to perhaps being hospitalized? And then to final recovery or, in the worst case, death? Oh, it's, it is quite variable. So I'm going to talk, rather than days, I'm talking weeks terms. But I'm not saying it's going to last weeks and weeks. It doesn't. It's a fairly short-term virus. But, um, but, but most people, you know, you can be infectious for up to, say, 14 days, possibly a bit longer before you start, start developing any symptoms. Um, and then you will have, can have symptoms for up to a week or two and maybe, but mostly, mostly it's a few days after that you'll have symptoms. And those symptoms will vary from, you might not, you might actually get infected and never even know you're infected. And I think we're going to find out when we get this, these tests that they are doing a lot of now, but there still is not enough being done. But that's because there are not in, physically not enough tests to actually do it yet. Um, we will find out a lot more people were infected a lot earlier. And there, there have been a lot of people who have had the virus and not had symptoms. Then you'll have the group who will have mild symptoms. Then you'll have that group of people who actually have quite severe symptoms who can end up in hospital. Absolutely. But there are some very, very good engineering companies um, that have been working on that. So I'd like to turn to a question that's come up here quite often in the United States. Dr. Anthony Fauci the head of the National Institutes of Health Allergy and Infectious Disease Unit, has said repeatedly that it will take 12 to 18 months to get to an effective vaccine that we can distribute widely. So could you unpack that for us a little bit? What does it take to get an effective vaccine on the market and set it up so that it can be distributed to everyone who needs it? Anthony Fauci is a great guy, actually. I I've, I've go to many of the conferences he's at. I, I, he, 
he's always a keynote speaker at any conference. I speak at the same conferences, but I'm not a keynote speaker when I speak. When he speaks, you can you can guarantee the auditorium is full. Um, so he's very well respected. In fact, on my web, website and blog, I bet there's actually a, a audio clip of him talking about coronavirus. So that's actually available on the um, on the actual website as well. So it's worth listening to, in fact. It's very good. Antibodies against the virus and neutralize the virus and then protect people. We eradicated smallpox with our vaccine that did that. So that's that was great. So first you have to make sure you can actually generate those antibodies. There is another part to the immune system that can be used as well, but it's not as effective when there aren't vaccines that work in that way as effectively. We can get antibodies, that's what we're really after. So, so first you need to show you can do that, and you tend to do that in small animals. Then you need to go to people and give a large number of people the same vaccine to make sure it's safe. An example would be a vaccine against RSV, which is a respiratory virus in children that was tested on children. Um, and unfortunately, it made the illness worse when the children actually got the virus and some children died. Um, so, so safety considerations have to be considered there. Now, we've moved on a long, a long way. That was several decades ago. And we've moved on a long way now in how we evaluate safety. So we have to do that. And then you have to see if it actually works against the virus itself. So you need somebody to become infected with the virus. A lot of the work I've been doing over the last couple of decades has been deliberately infecting people who we've given the vaccine to and seeing if they are protected from the virus. And then you can take it out, and then you try it in the general population and see if they are protected. So all of that can take between five to ten years. Technology has moved on a long way, and we've got, we've got a lot of new technologies, new ways of giving vaccines. So, and, he, and the quote is somewhere often said to be 12 to 18 months to try and accelerate that, compress this all down and Harvard um, University published a document yesterday suggesting ways of doing this and I can put that on the website actually if people want to read it it's, it is an open source document it's freely available and um, so I can add that to the blog um, if people want to look at that my personal opinion is if, uh, to be honest 18 months it, to try and squeeze what used to take five to ten years into 18 months with, even with everything we've got at the moment is optimistic. So I would say we're probably about, it's going to be about one and a half to two and a half years before we got a vaccine that might be available. And then you've got to remember, just like flu, we have a vaccine for flu, but we have to change it every single year because flu changes every year. And that'd be highly likely to be the case. Well, maybe not highly likely, but possibly the case with this virus. You would have, it would continue to change and you'd have to play catch up with the vaccine the whole time. So I'm a, I'm a little bit more pessimistic on a 12 to 18 month deadline um, to try and have a vaccine available. And even when we do have a vaccine available, there may be challenges involved there as well. I'd like to summarize for our listeners. First, we need to show that a vaccine will generate antibodies. And this is usually done in small animal models. Then you need to move to a human challenge study to show that it generates antibodies in people. Just out of curiosity, 
How many people are involved in one of those human challenge studies? It can vary. Um, the largest I've done um, had 86 people, I think, in it um, in total, but with different groups. So we had some who had a placebo vaccine, a dud vaccine, and some who had the active vaccine. And we were able to show that the vaccine worked in those. And we published that data and it's in the public domain. So, so you're, you're looking about in each group. So you'd, you'd have between, you know, 20 to 30 odd, maybe more. It can sometimes be more. It very much depends on the vaccine type and what your endpoints are. So stats come into it and a lot of statistical work has to be done to figure out the exact number. So a lot of expertise goes in first to calculate how many people, but you are looking, you're not, you're looking at far fewer people than if you went into the outset, into the field and you're looking at it in much safer conditions because all together and you're watching them the whole time with fewer people. So that's good. And you can get more data more quickly and that's good as well. So that's a little advantage of the challenge model. I agree. A study like this allows you to document the course of the disease in a controlled environment. And this is usually done in about 100 people. And then you said a large number for safety studies. What do you mean by a large number? The very initial studies for safety are not hundreds, so not thousands. They, that's variable, but you know, you're still in the hundreds for the initial studies. Just the initial safety study, very initial study. Then you go out into the field. But those thousands in the field the safe study, also possibly going to get infected as well. So you might get some data then in those thousands in the field that actually tell you whether it's working or not as well. And then you expand again to actually see more. And so once you're in the field and you're trying to see if it works in the field, you're talking about thousands of volunteers in your study. It makes sense to me that if you're looking for thousands of volunteers in the field to see if they're infected or not, we need to cross an active COVID season, right? Um, yes. Uh, well, A, we don't know this virus for all seasonal. That's it, because when you think about it, um, flu we know is seasonal. RSV we know is seasonal. Um, coronavirus is less so, um, and rhinovirus is less so. And if you think about it, temperature, you know, everyone thinks, oh, it's, it's cold, that's why you get a cold. Well, MERS... The other, the other mutant coronavirus came out of the Middle East. This, there was a big outbreak of this virus um, in hotels in Tenerife, um, you know, which is in the 20 degrees centigrade. And I'm sorry, I can't translate that to Fahrenheit for you. but <laughs> That's around 68 degrees Fahrenheit. It's questionable whether this will be a seasonal virus. It might be a virus that stays around it all year. However... There would be a natural cycle to it in that people will have windows open and not be cooped up as much and be outside a bit more. So you'd have those those effects will occur. But um, and then there is the worry once these lockdowns we have in so many um, cities and countries around the world are relaxed, you will have people who've not been exposed out who then become exposed and we get a second wave of the virus. And I think that's quite likely to happen. I think we will, as we relax these quarantines, which will have to happen, we can't all spend our time on Zoom. Um, you know, it's, we, there, will, there will be 
people going out there who have not been exposed, and you will see another wave of the virus. The question will be, how big is that wave going to be? So just in a practical sense, we may not be able to tell if a vaccine is working while we're under lockdown because it's not a natural condition. This, this is not normal circumstances. I mean, the streets are practically empty. Brighton Beach, I live in Brighton. We have a beach. It's like um, there, are, there are pictures of, um, in the newspapers from almost exactly one year ago, we were in the middle of a heat wave and Brighton Beach um, was um, you know, covered in people. Now it is deserted. And, and curiously, yesterday, we even had snow at one point, which was weird. But um, <laughs> it was very strange. But, um, but there you go. So it just shows the contrast. Though. You put a picture of Brighton Beach almost one year ago, fully covered with people, and now nobody's on it. So the circumstances of the virus is spreading in now is not the normal circumstance. Once we relax these, which we must do, that's when we got this risk of a second wave of things. I spent most of my career working on pharmaceuticals. I did a little bit of work in vaccines. In pharmaceuticals, we see a very high failure rate. In fact, 50% of phase two projects are terminated because they fail. And even in phase three, only 80% succeed. What are the similar rates of success or failure for vaccine development? It's, it, it really very much depends on the virus. Um, you know, with flu vaccines, we've, we've, got, we've, we've been trying to develop a universal flu vaccine, one that we'd only ever give one shot of for decades. We still aren't there um, with that. Um, so, and there have been multiple, multiple attempts. Some are getting very close now, I think, that that's that is good news. We are getting there, but it's taken a long time. So a lot do fail. You know the proportions would not be that dissimilar, but it, it really does depend on the virus. Take HIV for example. We were superb at getting um, drugs developed. So tr- it's a manageable disease now, and that and the, what started me in my virology research was that disease, or that virus, and AIDS the disease. No, it's manageable. It's manageable by drugs. We still don't have a vaccine for that. And despite that, must be one of the most intense vaccine development programs ever. I would I would suggest. Um, so that's the case. We've never had a common cold vaccine, and this is a common cold. So you know that that's an interesting one. Ebola, though, for example, we've actually did manage, manage to rapidly produce some vaccine candidates that are being used um, now in the outbreaks of Ebola. So it really is very much vaccine dependent. And that's why the two parts of the immune system are so important, as different viruses use different ways to try to escape the immune system. Many people are using wartime analogies to describe the current situation. And what you just said puts us into stark reality. Viruses use many strategies to defeat our defenses. And it's not as if they're thinking about it. It's just that once there's a mutation that overcomes one of our defenses, that particular virus proliferates and overwhelms our defenses. In fact, what my PhD was based on was deliberately mutating uh, flu viruses to try and, and so they would be able to escape from a certain antibody, so that we'd understand the mechanism of how that worked. 
Um, and we call them escape mutants for a reason. And it is because they are escaping our defenses. I'd like to wrap up by giving our listeners some information about how they can get involved. Where might they find the information on vaccine clinical trials or drug clinical trials or any of the research that's going on for COVID at this time? There are several websites um, and reputable ones as well. Certainly in the States and in Europe and the UK and much much of um, the rest of the world, clinical trials are governed, very strictly governed. Um, So you can actually Google there are companies that will um, assist you and point you in the direction of clinical trials. Some hospitals directly will have contacts that people can con- um, contact and volunteer for. Um, likewise, in the UK, the NHS um, is a source that people can go to. But the one thing about clinical trials is they are well regulated, getting better in other parts of the world. So you can be sure that the standard of the study you're going into is of reasonable safety and it will have been reviewed well. So, so, so it is possible to um, get involved in actually volunteering for those studies. Most major cities will have some form of clinical trial research centre. London, being a massive metropolitan city, um, obviously has multiple clinical trial centres in it. Um, so actually one of the advantages of doing clinical trial research in London is because we have people from many countries and many cultures who are a very mixed up society in lots of wonderful ways with lots of different cultures and races together. And that allows you to give a really good population to clinical studies with. But lots of other big cities will have places, you know, will have clinical research centres people can talk to. And there will be a demand to actually test this vaccine, uh, quite a quick demand, in fact. And I believe there is already requests going out for people who um, may have had the virus, have recovered, etc. So what final word do you have for our listeners? I do see a lot of what is going on around the world in different countries. And, you know, it's all varying different degrees of isolation and different methods of um, um, enforcement. I would definitely take the government's advice. We have a government um, advisory every afternoon uh, where the government spokesman usually says pretty much the same thing, which is go out as little as possible, stay isolated, wash your hands. Every time you come home, first thing you do before you do anything else and touch any other surface is you wash your hands. And you do that before you, when you go into any building. So if you go into, you go into work, first thing you should be doing is going to the uh, washroom and washing your hands. So you're not bringing, because you would have been on the underground, the tube, the metro, the bus, even walking through down the streets, you would have been in touch. So you wash your hands. Use hand sanitizers, because this is a virus that's not spread by me being in a room with you and me breathing at you. You know, it's not going to get past that way. You sneeze a cough. Most of the droplets that carry most of the virus, they fall to the ground within about two metres. goes on to surfaces. People touch those surfaces, then they touch their nose, they pick their nose, they touch their face, they rub their eyes, whatever. And that is how they catch the virus. So it's from their hand, so it's from somebody else leaving a virus on the surface. They then touch that surface, they then touch their face. And that's how viruses generally spread. And one more time, could you give our listeners the website address for your company? www 
virologyconsult.com. Rob, I'd like to thank you for coming on Improbable Developments today to share your insights and expertise and for giving people a practical picture of what it takes to bring a vaccine to market to fight COVID-19. Thank you, and stay safe, everyone. Please subscribe to Improbable Developments wherever you get your podcasts, and tell your friends to give us a listen.